All right, well, let's go ahead and pray, and we'll get into the book of John. Father, we love you, and we're so thankful, Lord, for your word. And thank you for the book of John. It stands out differently than the first three gospels. It was unique in its purpose and its design and uh, in who and how it was addressing issues. And we just pray that that would come out tonight as we talk about it and that we'd be encouraged in it, Lord. So thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the Gospel of John, it's the last of the Gospels. Um, But as I prayed, its account is unique. Uh, If you've read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, you've noticed that they provide somewhat of a similar synopsis of the accounts in the life of Jesus. And you probably noticed that most of the events occur in the north, in the Galilee, Capernaum, where his headquarters was, if we can call it that. And then you get to the book of John, and there's some time in the north, but the majority of the chapters are spent in the south, in Judea. So rather than a Galilean ministry, which the first three focused on, John focuses on the southern ministry of Judea. And um, so, yeah. Now, John, his gospel, of course, was written much later in history. If, if uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written between 55 and 65 A.D., uh, uh, John was written years and years later, probably between 85 and 95 A.D., and we'll look at that uh, later on when we get to the dating of the book. And the, the reasons also uh, why John's gospel differs so much from the others is because of some circumstances that developed uh, in the last quarter of the first century. Okay, some, some, uh, some cultic movements had started and uh, some sectarian movements have started. And so he was uh, reporting things in the gospels that the Jew at the time probably wouldn't have been so interested in. And that's why Matthew, Mark, Luke didn't talk about it. But because it's happening in the Greek world where the church is, this would be something that they would be very interested in knowing about Christ. And, uh, but we'll talk about that a little bit later. Last week, I mentioned that the synoptics, uh, focus, they focus on the, the miracles of Jesus that demonstrate his deity. Okay? Uh, we have him demonstrating his power over the demonic world. You remember in Gadara, the demons trembled before him, 6,000, a legion and begging him not to cast them uh, into the abyss, but to let them go into the pigs instead so they might stay in a particular region. And so they were afraid of him. Uh, Jesus demonstrated his power over nature. Uh, He both calmed the sea and he walked on the water. Uh, He demonstrated that uh, there's no spatial limits to his power, and so he often healed people when he wasn't even near them. Uh, he chose his power over death, and he, he does that as well in the book of John, but he raised uh, Jairus' daughter. So there's many miracles where there's this demonstration of deity. Well, it's not the same thing in the book of John. There's far less miracles, uh, but there's more declarations of deity. Uh, Jesus himself talks about his deity, and then the apostles uh, uh, make declarations of Jesus' deity. You know the, the, uh, the declaration of Thomas, after he saw Jesus risen from the dead and touched his scars in his hands and his side, he, he, he said to Jesus, my Lord and my God. Okay, very definitive. And um, so it's, it's a little bit different. One is demonstrations and John is declarations. And both are important. You know, if Jesus only claimed to be God, he could be accused of being all talk or just 
outright crazy, right? And if he was all miracles without any claims of deity, it would be easier to mistake in him for just one of the prophets. But with claims of deity and then uh, miracles that prove his deity, the two come together nicely, very consistent. So let's, let's get into our regular routine. We're going to talk about the author uh, of the book. We'll talk about the dating. And then always most interesting are some of the special considerations. And then we'll look at an outline for the book itself. So what about the author? How many of you guys have tried to, uh, other than looking at the first page uh, of the evangelist there, uh, it says John, but have you ever tried to figure out from the book of John uh, or from the book of Acts or the other Gospels who the author of the book of John was? His by far is the most interesting of all of them, okay? And uh, it's kind of a fun exercise, but again, as I was saying, what do I report because there's so many things to report? So we'll, we'll look at that. Um, uh, when it comes to the authorship of John, uh, he's, most of the others haven't received much of a challenge. Uh, John's did uh, in the late second century. There was a, a sect or a cult called the uh, Theologians, and uh, they tried to convince everybody that John's gospel was actually written by John's enemy, Serinthus. Huh? What were they called? What were they called? The, the cult? Theologians, A-L-O-G-I-N. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Serinthus was an enemy of John the Apostle. Uh, he was a real person, and uh, John did not like him. In fact, it's recorded that uh, John was in a certain building, and uh, he saw Serinthus come in the other door. And he, he told his companion, he said, let's leave before the roof falls in. And uh, so a little bit of uh, little humor from the, the son of thunder, one of them, anyway. Uh, yeah, so the, the, it's very interesting because theologians, uh, they didn't believe uh, in the deity of Christ or the humanity of Christ, uh, which is actually taught emphatically throughout the book of John, which is interesting because Serinthius didn't believe in the deity of Christ or the humanity of Christ. So why would he write a document against his own position? It was a very strange thing. It's, it's totally self-defeating. Um, yeah, and so you, as you can uh, imagine, the, the early apologists uh, of the church, they had no small contention with this small cult. And uh, I'm trying to remember the church father's name. Um, it'll come to me when it's too late. Uh, but he wrote volumes against this particular cult. So anyway, uh, and then more recently, uh, there's been uh, two other ideas about who uh, authored the book of John. Uh, both are without justification. Uh, I think that what has happened in uh, academia is that it becomes trendy to challenge accepted truths. And so if somebody just throws something out there, everybody oohs and ahs and they stick it in a book and then it's enshrined forever as being something that was out there. Um, it's like in the evolutionary community, everybody has found the missing link uh, until further notice and then it's not a missing link at all uh, and, and it's not even a monkey uh, or anything. So, uh, but the same kind of thing has happened with the Bible. Oh, we, we, we found a weakness in the armor and they throw it out there and, and people in the, the secular community, they ooh and on and they go see and, and then somebody looks at it a little closer and says, this wasn't even worth our time. 
And uh, that's the case with, with uh, the authorship of John. Um, some have said it's a, it's a man uh, who is called John the Elder. Uh, another guy said that um, it was a, a disciple of John. And, uh, but again, there's nothing to verify that. It's just some wild uh, guess. So at the end of the day, uh, there's no good reason to, to challenge the authorship of John. So as usual, let's look at some internal and external evidence Internal being that which is in the Bible, external being that which is evidence found outside the Bible. So let's start with the external. Uh, the first piece there is, is an early father of church. His name was uh, Irenaeus, and he was a friend of one of John's disciples named Polycarp. And he said that Polycarp confirmed that John wrote it. Now I think that that's a, a witness that is worth uh, addressing, don't you? Like if you wanted to know something about me and I had died last week uh, and you wanted to know something about me from somebody that worked with me, who would you talk to? you talk to Roger. And I'm pretty sure that Roger would give you a uh, pretty accurate account knowing the character of Roger. Okay? And so that would essentially be the same thing. Polycarp was a disciple of John the Apostle and uh, a real person. We have his writings uh, he wrote letters to other churches. Uh, he argued with um, Clement of Rome over the date of Easter and, uh, and lost uh, until a few centuries, and then he won. Uh, he was dead. He didn't get to see his victory. Uh, but he's a real person. And he said that John wrote it. Uh, also, uh, some of the other, uh, I think, important fathers are uh, a man named Tatian. He lived from 120 to 180. He affirmed uh, John's uh, authorship the Muratorian Canon from 170, Clement of Alexandria from 150, and then Tertullian from 150 also. They all affirm that John was the author. Okay? So there's actually tons of external evidence to uh, John's authorship, none of which I, none of you are probably too interested in. Uh, maybe you are. Let's talk about the internal stuff. Now, looking for John in the book of John is very difficult uh, at first, second, third, and maybe even the 30th glance until you discover what he's up to. And after you discover what he's up to, you, you're on to him. And you figure out that he's doing his best to stay anonymous in his book. But he's not completely anonymous. And you can tell that John was very careful to read Matthew, Mark, and Luke and trying to figure out how he could avoid being the connection between Matthew, Mark, and Luke with the book of John so that you could somehow by the process of elimination find out who he was. And it's very interesting. But as soon as you get on to him, you go, I see what you've done. And then it starts to piece together. Okay. So how many times do you think the name John shows up? Now, not John the Baptist, but another name John shows up in the book of John. Zero times. Zero times. So he's unmentioned in his own gospel. So anyway, uh, we don't want to get too tedious with all this, but we want to uh, look at enough of it. And uh, once you get enough of the details, uh, you yield a consistent fruit, and that's what we're looking for. Um, ba basically speaking, uh, as you read the book of John, it's immediately evident that the author was a Jew who lived in Israel. Okay? Uh, he was intimately ac acquainted with the Jewish faith, its customs, Old Testament scriptures, all of that stuff. Uh, he was familiar with the geography and the topography of Israel. Okay? Uh, 
Also, he was an eyewitness to the life, ministry, teachings, miracles, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, it's stated that way in John 21, verse 24. It says, I was there, saw it all. Okay? Uh, the author is, uh, he's this unnamed disciple in the gospel. Maybe you've read about the other disciple. Uh, chapter 20, verse 2. Another disciple. Chapter 18, verse 15. He's the disciple who leaned on Jesus' breast at the Last Supper, 1323, and frequently called the disciple whom Jesus loved. Okay? Now, there's good indication that John was the youngest disciple, and that accounts for him being able to write up to 98 AD. Okay? So he was young uh, when Jesus selected him. He could have been early as 18 years old when that happened. Okay? So anyway, unnamed, uh, as I've stated, what's interesting is uh, uh, that when the inner circle, who was the inner circle made, of, made up of? Peter, James, and John, that's right. So uh, is that when the inner circle of, of those three would normally be mentioned in John, they're not. That's interesting. And when John's name should appear with Peter, it's not. You've got to read John a number of times uh, to catch that. And then you start looking at all the places that he does that, and you see that he's up to something. He's trying to hide himself uh, in the text. Uh, he does it very differently than Luke does. Yeah? Is it not written, I see here in chapter 20, John, the first day of the week, cometh Mary Magdalene early, when it was yet dark, under the sepulchre. Oh. Yeah. So when you look back at the other, the other three gospels, when you find this, he's named. Yeah. So he is mentioned, but he's using. But the problem, the problem in the other gospels, he's named with other people, so he's camouflaged in there. Yeah. yeah. He he was cheating. He was cheating. <laughs> yeah. Um. In John 1.14, uh, the author implies that he was on the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter and James as witnesses of his glory. Okay? Now, we know the author was not Peter. There's too much evidence to demonstrate that. Uh, and James was martyred shortly after the church was born and well before, well before uh, the gospel was written. So James could not have been written, uh, be, the, be the author. So if the author was in the inner circle, which it seems to be clear that he was, uh, John is our only option as the author. Okay? So what it boils down to primarily is if you can demonstrate that John, was in the, if he was in the inner circle, you've got him. Okay? And that's the real challenge. Uh, there's many, many more lines of evidence that we could look at, but I think that's sufficient for tonight. Uh, John has been discovered, and uh, I think that the reason for it was is you remember when um, the, they came to John the Baptist and they said, hey, you realize that they're baptizing more people than you are. And John celebrated that. And he said, I must decrease. And he must increase. And John felt the same way. This book is not about me. I don't want glory for it. I don't want to be recognized for it. I just want the information to be put out there. Okay, that was his humility that speaks in being unnamed. And uh, I think he, he probably had a little fun doing it too, trying to stay anonymous. 
So I think we could definitely learn something from that in Western culture, is in the things that we do, the things that we accomplish, we could be a little more anonymous rather than putting our name on everything, uh, rather than reporting our successes all the time. And I know it's hard in the, the business world when you're trying to write a, a, a resume, um, but we should be careful. All right, let's look at the date. Now, uh, the date is really interesting to, to establish. Now, most scholars place the writing of the gospel somewhere between 85 and 95 AD, uh, which would be during the reign of, of Domitian. And the church fathers uh, attest to that. They talk about John writing the gospels, his letters, his gospel, his letters, and the, the apocalypse uh, when he was an older man, okay? And um, it was definitely written before 110 AD because Ignatius uh, quoted from uh, the Gospel of John. Uh, so it had to come before then. So does Irenaeus in the early part of the, of the second century. Uh, Ignatius said that John died in 98 AD. So he definitely wrote before then. Amen? Okay. Uh, Almost all scholars agree that it was written after 70 AD, but not just after, but quite a few years after. Uh, John makes no mention of it, and they believe that they, he doesn't because so much time has gone by that the horror of the whole thing has kind of worn off. Okay, it's kind of worn off. Um, I already mentioned that they, the early fathers uh, said that John was old. Um, then among even the fathers, there's a debate as to whether he wrote before he was banished to uh, Patmos or after. And, you know, I don't really care. I don't think it's that important. Uh, I'm okay with setting a date of 85 to 95 AD. Are you guys okay with that? Okay. If you shake your head, it's just something you have to deal with. So you'll have to bring the evidence next week against it. So here's an interesting uh, piece of papyri. Uh, oh, I thought his name was up there. It's a Ryland, the Ryland Fragment. And it can, it, uh, it's a Greek uh, text there. It's from John 18, uh, verses 1 through 33, and 37, verse 37 through 38. And it, it dates from the early part of the second century. So it's a very, very old uh, piece of papyri. It's near and 2,000 years old. Um, so anyway, uh, we can definitely say that John wrote before this. Okay? It was found, in a, interestingly enough, in a small town in Egypt. Uh, John wrote from Ephesus. And uh, this letter had been copied and um, circulated uh, across the Mediterranean. So it's very interesting. Uh, and what I should probably do uh, is get you, I have a list of all the church fathers who quoted from uh, the books of the New Testament and when they quoted from it. And it's an interesting chart. Have you guys ever seen one of those? So it'll tell you, like, it'll take like Tatian and it'll take the book of Matthew and it'll tell you uh, when he quoted from it and where. And then it'll do the, the book of Mark, Luke, John, all the way to Revelation. And uh, it's, it's very interesting. And they say that uh, before uh, the, the end of the fourth century, that you can take all of the Father's writings, compile them together, and you'll have all of the New Testament because they quoted some from it so copiously. It's very interesting. So, so if, we, uh, if we lost all of the Greek manuscripts, we could still compile the entire Bible just based upon quotations. 
So that's pretty cool. There are about 30,000 manuscripts of the New Testament. So they'd have to do a lot of work to get rid of uh, all of that business. So, yeah, let's look at some of the interesting facts. Um, yeah, um, when we come to the book of John, the issue of Jesus' origin uh, becomes very unique. Okay? Uh, Mark was the only gospel that didn't provide a genealogy for Jesus' life. Uh, Matthew records Jesus' genealogy back to Abraham, which focuses on his Jewishness. Luke takes the genealogy all the way back to Adam, so focusing on his humanity. Uh, John doesn't actually provide a genealogy, but he traces Jesus back to eternity. Okay. He's like, let's just take this back to his real dad, and uh, that's what he does. So John 1.1 begins with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. So Jesus existed in the beginning before anything was created. Okay? Uh, therefore, he was not made, but is eternal. And uh, as Revelation 4.11 says, by him all things have their existence. So he brought it into existence. And then it says, and without him nothing was made that was made, so as Paul says, for by him all things were created through him and for him, and therefore he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Um, the, the word there really means to sustain, so Jesus didn't just bring everything into existence. By the word of his power, he's keeping it into existence. Okay. Uh, Colossians 1, 16 and 17. And then... As John goes on, he who existed before all things assumed a human body, a human body. John says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That is the, the immaterial word, John 1.1, 1, 1, assumed a material existence in the body of Jesus, John chapter 1, verse 14. His deity was joined to humanity something which the ancient theologians called the hypostatic union. That is, two natures combined in one person. Two natures, one person. And so Jesus wasn't 50% man and 50% God. He is fully God and fully man. That's the mystery of the incarnation. And by the way, I think it's the most um, astounding miracle uh, in all of the scriptures. Yeah, by far. Um, so why did John address the deity of Christ so thoroughly and why did he focus so much on Jesus' claims of deity? Remember, Matthew, Mark, and Luke were all declaration, or, uh, demonstrations of deity. But the book of John is declarations of deity. John focuses on that. Yeah, so in the second half of the first century, uh, perhaps you guys have heard about the Gnostics. The Gnostics. A Greek word uh, gnosis means knowledge. And uh, they believed that people were saved based upon the secret knowledge. And it was in opposition to being saved by faith alone. Okay, by faith alone. So that was a huge problem. And if you've read the book of John, you know that faith in Christ alone comes to the top. Okay, faith in Christ is mentioned over and over and over again. 
Okay, faith is huge. Truth is huge in John. But they also, they rejected the deity and humanity of Christ. Okay, they believed that this stuff that we're made of on the outside is evil, that the material things in the flesh are evil. And so the logos, the word, would never and could never really be, uh, you know, the hypostatic union could never occur. And, uh, and so John, uh, as this cult was, was emerging and, be, and starting to conflict with the church, John said it's time to address some of these other details that weren't so important to the Jew but are essential uh, to the Greek and uh, to these people that are coming against the church. They were called Gnostics. They were the know-it-alls. But they, some of the stuff they said was so bizarre. Uh, they said that Jesus uh, didn't have a body he just appeared like, like he did. He was more of a phantom. And so if he walked down the beach, uh, he wouldn't, there would be no footprints. So Jesus, I mean, he played a lot of tricks on people. I mean, he was eating fish and bread. How do you do that? And uh, all kinds of stuff. People were touching him. They could feel him. Um, I'm kidding. He didn't play any tricks. Uh, he, was, he had a, a human body. And uh, it was God in the flesh. So in the book of John, salvation is by faith alone in Christ and that Christ is God in the flesh. Yeah. So, um, so John's gospel doesn't just fill in the gaps regarding Jesus' Judean ministry and teaching. It was really written as an apologetic in many ways against this emerging heresy. So... Uh, some more interesting things. In John's gospel, it's where we find the seven famous I am statements, okay? Uh, statements of deity and supremacy, by the way. Uh, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. It's a great discussion. And uh, John chapter six, remember Jesus is saying, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have no part in me. And it says, and that day many disciples departed from him. Uh, you start talking about cannibalism to Jews and they're just out of there. Uh, but they mistaken his words. Jesus clarifies at the end of that whole time. He says, uh, the flesh profits nothing, but it's, it's the spirit, and my words are spirit, and they are truth. He's talking about spiritual truths, not physical ones. And, um, but he's saying that it, it is him that sustains life. I am the bread of life. He's the light of the world. Uh, chapter 8, verse 12. He's the door for the sheep. He's the good shepherd. He's the resurrection and the life. He's the source of all those things. He's the way, the truth, the life, John 14, 6. And then the interesting statement uh, is he says, before Abraham was, I am. And uh, do you remember the response that he got from the Pharisees when he said that? They picked up stones to kill him. Because what Jesus is doing in that statement is he's saying that I've existed eternally, as I am means, uh, but he's also identifying himself with the voice that spoke at the burning bush. They didn't like that very much, and to them that was blasphemy, uh, but it was true. So, yeah. Also, there are no parables in John. There's an illustration in John, but no parable. Okay, no illustrations of his teachings. And there are only seven miracles in John minus the resurrection. I'll just give them to you real quick. Water into wine. How many other gospels mention that one? None. 
healing the official's son, healing the invalid man, feeding of the 5,000, that's uh, Matthew uh, 14 and uh, was it Mark 6, walking on the water, uh, healing the man born blind, and then raising Lazarus. And, and raising Lazarus, of course, is definitely not mentioned in the other Gospels. All right. Let's, we got time for an outline? Yeah, we got a, a couple minutes here. Um, I stole Norman Geisler's for this one, if you're a note taker. His outline, the broader outline, goes like this. There's a revelation of Christ to the world, chapter 1 through 4. I missed my parentheses there. The rejection of Christ by the world. So revelation and rejection by the world. And then revelation of Christ to his disciples. And then reception of Christ to his disciples. So let's break it down. So his revelation to the world. Uh, Norman Geiser talks about his pedigree. We've looked at that from John chapter 1. Uh, from all eternity. Um, his presentation to the world. Uh, and that comes through, uh, mostly through John the Baptist. Uh, we quoted him Sunday. Uh, he saw Jesus walking. And what did he say? He says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So John is sort of introducing him uh, to the world at that point. Okay? And then there's the, the preview. Uh, that is of his ministry, John 2 through 4. Uh, we have uh, his, his kind of presenting him, if you will, uh, to the wedding guests, chapter 2, 1 through 12, uh, where he did his first miracle. Uh, presented to the Jews when Jesus cleansed the temple. That was quite the introduction, wasn't it? Uh, that, that got him off on the right foot with the Pharisees for sure. Uh, by the, a teacher of the Jews when he met with Nicodemus at night, talking about how it is that someone sees the kingdom of God. Uh, by John's disciples, uh, we mentioned this earlier, that John clarified to his disciples, I'm just the messenger boy. I'm not the Christ. I, my job is to decrease when he comes on the scene. He was presented uh, by the, to, to the Samaritans, initially by the woman at the well. And then she, of course, went into the city as this great evangelist and, and said, come see this man who, who knows everything about me. And then they come out and they meet him and, and they say, now we believe, uh, not because you said anything, but because now we've met him. And uh, so they were introduced. And then, of course, he's, at, he's traveling north during this time. And then by the Galileans, chapter 4, 43 through 54, uh, Jesus in the north, very briefly in the book of John, he teaches and he performs miracles. Then there's his rejection by the world. You remember when we were in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, his life is broken up into all these uh, different uh, uh, sections, and we enter quickly into his passion, his suffering in the book of John. And uh, so it all rev revolves around unbelief uh, from chapter 5 through chapter 12. And... Um, Norman Geiser talks about the principles of unbelief. It's really interesting when you read chapter 5 and 6, and Jesus is kind of diagnosing the problem with the Pharisees. And he says interesting things. He, said, he says, you don't, have, you don't have my word abiding in you. He says, you're unwilling to come to me. He says, you don't have the love of God in you. He says, and that you won't receive me for who I am. He says, you don't seek the honor of God, but the honor of men. 
And, and what I find fascinating is that he says, you don't believe Moses. He's saying Genesis through Deuteronomy. He says, you don't believe that. You've used it to your own ends, but he says, you don't believe that. If you had, you would believe me. Yeah. He says that man is only interested in temporal things, and of course, they rejected him. Um, what else? The parties of unbelief. Um, of course, the Pharisees. We have the Sadducees. We have the Jews of Judea primarily. Some of the Jews up north and the chief priests. Then John chapter 8 through 9. Uh, the, the Pharisees progress further in their unbelief. And this is where they really begin to challenge Jesus but not just challenging, they begin to insult him and then they begin to blaspheme him and then at one time they even attempted to execute him illegally outside of a trial. Chapter 10 through 12, um, the Jews and their leaders demonstrate their unbelief has been uh, set in concrete and now it's, it's looking more like Pharaoh when God said, after Pharaoh hardened his heart, God said, I would harden his heart. And so in conjunction with his own will, God hardens, and uh, John even quotes Isaiah, uh, kind of communicating that same thing. It's been said in concrete, and, uh, and in the midst of all that, we have the raising of Lazarus, and instead of that sparking some belief in these people, it says some of them snuck away from where there was initially a, a funeral, where there was professional mourners, and uh, he brings Lazarus out of the grave and they sneak off to tell the Pharisees. Did you see what he's, he's raising people from the dead. We gotta get rid of this guy. It's craziness. And then in chapter 12, the conspiracy against Jesus is confirmed. And then we move on. Everything quickly moves from all of that stuff right into the upper room. And we're stuck in the upper room for a long period of time, longer than any of the other gospels. We have much more discussion. We have a lot more action. So we have this pattern for their lives, chapter 13. Uh, what was that pattern that Jesus set for these men who were to lead the church? He took his outer garments off. Yeah. He girded himself and he washed their feet. Yeah. He, he, the example, that's right, the pattern he was setting was servant leadership. And then from 1331 to 1431, Jesus begins to uh, prepare them, I think, emotionally and psychologically for his death. And, uh, and part of that he does by the, the coming of the Holy Spirit, okay, the advantages that that will be. In chapter 15, uh, he, uh, and I love chapter 15 for this reason, he ordains that the disciples were, will bear fruit in the world. You've not chosen me, but I've chosen you, that you would go and that you would bear much fruit. And it's stated in a sovereign decree. He's saying, you will go and you will bear much fruit and nothing can stop it. And he said something like that in Matthew. He said, look, the gates of Hades, well, they're gonna try to come against the church, but they won't succeed. And then in here he's saying, I'm gonna send you out and you're an unstoppable force, okay? And then when he rises from the dead, he gives the great commission. He says, all authority in heaven and in earth is mine. Therefore, go. I'll take care of this. And um, a lot of great things happen. And we're the fruit of that. Amen. And in chapter 16, 1 through 24, uh, Jesus promises them hope through his resurrection. 
This last one here, um, this is interesting. At the end of chapter 16, the disciples get real confident, especially Peter, huh? Okay. And in chapter 17, uh, Jesus uh, offers this prayer. Uh, we've called it the high priestly prayer. Jesus prays for his 12, and then he prays for those in the future that would believe in him. In chapter 18 through 19, the disciples' courage is tested. How well does it do? It doesn't do so well. Peter, uh, out of um, you know, misdirected uh, courage, he starts off with a little bit of courage and he, he cuts off Malchus's ear and then Jesus puts it back on and, and rebukes Peter uh, saying, you know, you totally misunderstood that thing about the sword thing, okay? Uh, so put it away and then at that point everybody flees and as we looked at last week, uh, or in, in Mark, Mark flees too. He just happened to be there not fully clothed and, and left, it seems, with less clothing. <laughs> and, uh, and then we get to chapter 20 and their certainty, of course, through the resurrection is restored and there's no denying. Jesus is risen. Amen? He's risen. And uh, now uh, people debate, what was it that gave courage to the disciples? Was it the resurrection of Christ or was it the coming of the Holy Spirit? Was it the resurrection of Christ or was it the coming of the Holy Spirit? There's good arguments for both, but they didn't step out until the coming of the Spirit. It's interesting. Maybe it's a combination. Maybe we can be right on both accounts there. In chapter 21, Jesus confirms or perfects their confidence through commission. Now, primarily it's Peter. Because Peter denied the Lord three times. And uh, here in John 21, Jesus says, sit down. Let's have some breakfast. I got something I need to take care of. And he ends it with, you just feed my sheep. You understand? And uh, yeah. Yes, sir. What's that? In your opinion, it was Thomas for the resurrection? Okay. As being his courage? Yeah. He was, yeah. Yeah, but he was, his faith was confirmed, wasn't it? Yeah, for sure. And then finally, uh, inserted in the Gospel of John is his purpose for writing, and we can't forget that. He said, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have eternal life. So as John has communicated through his entire book, eternal life is available through one person and faith in him alone. So, all right. Any, any questions? You got, you got one and a half minutes. What's that? Thanksgiving dinner, that's right. So we will be having a Thanksgiving dinner here at the church uh, for those of you that don't like your family. And, uh, or you want to just bring your family down here with you. And we have a sign-up sheet so that you can, uh, so we know what you're bringing so everybody doesn't bring a turkey. Okay, that would be fine with me. Uh, but my son really wants cranberry sauce. So you can sign up online as well. Um, most of the people in this audience will probably sign up on the paper. Maybe your email are technologically savvy, but... I probably wouldn't know how to do it. So, All right, why don't we stand up and we'll pray. 
As I said, Bob O'Neill will do his photo gallery next week. And uh, for those of you that are new on Sundays, we're currently going verse by verse through the book of Hebrews. And we've been in Hebrews 11 for about a month now. So, oh, come on. (laughs) Well, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you and we thank you for your word. We thank you that uh, indeed, um, as you decreed sovereignly, that your people would go and they would bear much fruit because uh, the gospel, as Paul says in Romans 1.16, it is the power of God unto salvation. And people continue to believe and so they're saved. And uh, Lord, I pray that you would always be reminding us, Lord, of the power of your word, that faith comes by hearing uh, so that we would yield ourselves to it in our own lives And Lord, we would trust that when we preach the gospel, that those that hear, Lord, some will believe. And and we want to see people saved. So thank you for the book of John. And I just pray that you'd help us to be encouraged by it and that we would encourage others with it, Lord. So we love you and thank you. Lord, be with my church family this week. Just lavish your grace upon them, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.